Speaking of psychology is taking a summer break, so we're rerunning one of our favorite episodes from the past. In July 2021, I talked to psychologist Julia Simner about how people with synesthesia experience the world and what we can learn from studying this fascinating condition. We hope you enjoy this episode from the archives. Speaking of psychology, we'll be back with new episodes in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening. Words that taste like orange candy. Music that projects brilliant, shimmering colors. Numbers that come with personalities and full life stories. These are all forms of synesthesia, a neurological condition in which senses such as taste, touch, smell, and vision link or merge. Historical accounts of people with synesthesia date back hundreds of years, but it's only in recent decades that scientists have been able to use brain imaging and other modern research methods to gain a better understanding of how synesthesia works and why it might occur. So what is it like to have synesthesia? What might cause it? And how do the brains of people with synesthesia differ from those of people without it? What can we learn about the human mind more generally from studying synesthesia and other sensory differences? Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, the flagship podcast of the American Psychological Association that examines the links between psychological science and everyday life. Our guest today is Dr. Jules Simner, a professor of neuropsychology at the University of Sussex in the United Kingdom, who specializes in multisensory research. She has studied synesthesia in adults and children for nearly two decades. She also researches other sensory differences, including misophonia, an extreme aversion to certain sounds, and aphantasia, the inability to see pictures in your mind's eye. We'll discuss these today, too, and talk about what links these threads of research together. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Simner. Thanks very much for the invitation. So some of our listeners have probably heard of synesthesia, or at least the most common forms of it, like people seeing colors when they hear music. But synesthesia is a lot more varied than people may realize. And you've written and tested for 128 different types. What types are out there? What are the differences and the commonalities? So it's quite hard to estimate exactly how many types of synesthesia there are because some could be quite well hidden. But the ones we know most about are the ones that people can realize most readily and report to us most easily. And I think for that reason, we tend to think of the most common types of synesthesia as being the ones that trigger unusual color perceptions. So experiencing colors when you are reading words, uh, looking at numbers, uh, listening to music, uh, and then perhaps more obscurely swimming. So different swimming strokes uh, causing different color perceptions. Um, perhaps even uh, reading Braille also and watching signers in sign language. All of these are known to trigger colors. But as I said, um, Although people talk about colors most often uh, in the context of synesthesia, I think it may be that colors are just the easiest to report because there are many different other synesthetic sensations. So you could experience flavors that flood the mouth. So you're reading and your mouth is being bombarded with sensations of uh, Yorkshire pudding <laughs> or processed peas or bitter lemon or nice orange fruit sweets, which is what Julia tastes of, my name Julia, or perhaps less pleasant taste, so um, the taste of earwax or 
other things that you wouldn't want in your mouth, maybe vomit and so on. So the, the, that's also another type of synesthesia we know about. But to answer your question, there are many different kinds of synesthesia. They can trigger colors, tastes, smells, textures, uh, bodily feelings, um, and the compulsion even to put your body into certain shapes or uh, formations. So I remember a very rare case from many years ago of a professor who had an urge to form shapes with his body in response to different words that he heard. So many types. <laughs> So you, you said your name has a flavor. Is that uh, universal? How does your name have a flavor? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So what I described to you, and I think he wouldn't mind me mentioning this at all. What I described to you was the taste of the, the, taste of the name Julia as experienced by synesthete James Wonerton. Now, James Wonerton is a particularly special and important synesthete um, for me. Um, not only have I studied James for the last 20 years, but James has been an amazing advocate for the synesthesia community. He is the president of the UK Synesthesia Association, and he has taken part in so much outreach himself to help people to understand the condition. And for James, the name Julia tastes of uh, orange fruit sweets. It's actually a branded fruit sweet. Um, yeah, and the interesting thing is most people call me Jules Simner. They use my name, my nickname Jules, but with James, we don't do that because Jules does not taste as nice as Julia. Jules has a bit of an unpleasant taste. Uh, James politely tells me it tastes of porridge. <laughs> I think it may actually uh, taste of drool or saliva um, because we know that there are links between the the word that triggers synesthesia and the type of taste experienced. And from my 20 years of research, I rather suspect that Jules tastes of drool, which is why we use the name Julia. <laughs> so do, do people with music and color synesthesia actually see colors in the world around them when they hear music, or is it more like just something in their mind's eye? So the answer to that depends on the synesthete you're speaking to, because there are several different ways that synesthetes can experience their color. So this was captured quite nicely by our colleagues, uh, Mike Dixon and Daniel Smilek and uh, their team in Canada. They were able to uh, name projector synesthetes versus associator synesthetes. So associated synesthetes experience their colors somewhere in the mind's eye, like a kind of strong internal mental imagery. Projector synesthetes will see their colors projected out in the outside world. So a couple of examples. If you have colored letters and numbers and are a projector synesthete, you may see those colors superimposed onto the text that you're reading. Or if I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me describing uh, or as described to me by um, synesthesia scientist Julian Asher, those colors can be projected out there in the world um, floating in space. So Julian Asher is a geneticist who helped us to understand the genetics of synesthesia. And he told me that when he was a, a young boy, his parents would take him to the symphony and he assumed that the house lights dimmed so that people could see the colors better. Because for him, the orchestra has colors floating above it. 
He actually thought, why else would anybody dim the house lights apart from to see the synesthetic colours better? <laughs> That's amazing. So in your mind or in the outside world, yeah, and sometimes experienced in unusual ways. I remember a student of mine from 20 years ago who experienced pain as colours and for her, the colours were a cone that projected from her head in colour. And if she thought very hard about the shape of the cone, she could moderate the pain of the headache. How common is synesthesia and what's the prevalence in the population? Do we know? Well, yes. So this is something I've spent quite a lot of the last 20 years looking into. Um Our first estimates for commonness were based on um, asking synesthetes to come forward. So uh, there was a very nice study by Simon Baron-Cohen and his colleagues in 1996, and they placed an advert in the newspaper in Cambridge, UK, and it described synesthesia and it asked synesthetes to come forward. And he found that the prevalence of synesthesia was one in 2000 from that study. Now, of course, unfortunately, and, and of course they knew this, they would be radically underestimating because they were relying on synesthetes to read the, to buy the newspaper that day, to, to read the article, to come forward, you know, which are lots of things that filter out people through that process. So in 2000 and um, in the early 2000s, uh, my colleague Jamie Ward and I decided to Instead of relying on synesthetes to come forward, we started to go out into the general population. We would gather large groups of people together and screen every single one of them. And this gave us a, a sort of better estimate, really, of the prevalence of synesthesia. And since then, I've individually screened almost 20,000 people um, for synesthesia. And from that, we have a quite a good idea that synesthesia is at least 4.4% in the population. So at least one in 23 people have synesthesia. In that study, we were looking at around 140 different types of synesthesia, but we had missed out some quite crucial types. So we also know independently that around 10% of people see time or numbers or letters mapped out in space. Now, That would add another sort of 10% to that figure that that I gave earlier. We also know that at least 1% to 2% of the population have personalities for letters, numbers, days of the week, months of the year. So we would have to add that on as well. Um, So, But it does really come down to what you think synesthesia is. If you think these numbers are getting quite high, they are. But you might want to question whether numbers mapped out in space, whether time mapped out in space is a synesthesia because 10% of the population experiencing that makes us start to question, well, is this really synesthesia at all? But a very simple answer is at least 4% of the population. Now, that's an interesting prevalence because that feels small. 4.4% feels small, but it's actually equivalent to the entire population of the United States in the world. So if you were to gather all synesthetes together, that would be 307 million synesthetes worldwide, which is, you know, somewhere approximating the USA population. So it's a rare condition, but not insignificant. And do you know, is it more common in men or women, or is it equally distributed? See, that's a very nice question again, because it speaks to methodologies. So this early study of prevalence conducted by placing an advert in the newspaper and asking synesthetes to come forward, gave the very, very strong impression that it was a female trait. 
because I think something like eight times as many female synesthetes were found as males. So it put across the message that synesthesia was a, was a female trait, and that stayed with us for about a decade. However, it turns out that that was a, a trick of the methodology, a confound in the methodology, because in fact, we know from many other studies that women with unusual conditions are simply more likely to come forward. So what we actually have is a condition which is balanced across the senses. When you go out and screen people through a large population, you find the same number as ma- the same number of male and female synesthetes. But when you ask them to come forward, the men hold back and the women reach out to scientists. <laughs> I, you know, I mentioned in the introduction that in the past couple of decades, scientists have begun using brain scans to understand what's happening in the brains of people with synesthesia. What have they found? Do the brains of people with synesthesia look different or function differently from the brains of people who don't have it? Yeah, I think brain imaging in synesthesia has been the most important scientific step forward in 200 years. I remember giving synesthesia lectures and synesthesia talks before the advent of these brain imaging uh, findings. And I would spend the entire talk trying to persuade people that synesthesia was real. Now, somewhere around 2005, we got a sudden proliferation of imaging studies. And that was wonderful because now when I give synesthesia talks, the first thing I do is show the brain of a synesthete in an fMRI image, for example, and the brain of a control. And they're so very different that I no longer have to struggle to persuade people on genuineness. So what do they show? These these brain imaging studies show very nicely that the brains of synesthetes are different to those of people without synesthesia. They, they're different in their functionality. So in fMRI, we can see that color selective regions or regions close to color areas in the visual cortex will light up in response to reading black and white numbers for synesthetes, when obviously for controls, those same regions would only light up if they were exposed to color in the real world. Um, And also some very nice uh, data from um, our uh, Dutch colleagues has shown that synesthetes have um, different structural qualities in their brain. So uh, differences in their white matter coherence in different parts of the brain. So greater white matter connectivity near color selective regions, for example. Um, Also other interesting differences, differences in frontal areas, differences in parietal areas that might be linked to uh, a greater binding. So binding is where we bring together different features of the world. So for example, if I look at a green apple, um, the greenness is in one part of my brain, the shape of the apple is in another part of my brain, the binding region helps to bring those pieces of information together. And synesthetes have differences in parietal areas that deal with binding, almost as if they're Overbinding features. They're not only binding the colours of apples to the shapes of apples, they're binding the colours of apples to letters and numbers and, and music and so on. So, yeah, brain imaging has really revolutionised what we do. So do researchers like you have any theories as to why synesthesia develops? And is it hereditary? Do you, is there a cause or you're just born with it? 
So on the question of inheritance, it does seem to be genetically endowed in some way rather than, well, for a start, we do know, first of all, that it passes down through families. So a study back uh, in 2005 with my colleague Jamie Ward showed that if you have synesthesia in the family, you're much more likely to have it sort of, you're more likely to have it popping up through generations than much more likely than you expect from chance alone. So it's passing through families. Now, of course, it could be learned. It could be parents teaching children. But we know that's not the case for several reasons. First of all, parents and children are likely to have very different kinds of synesthesia. So what's being passed on is a sort of predisposition for synesthesia. But you might have a parent with coloured letters whose son has tasty words. And so that suggests it's not being taught through the generations. And, And quite often for that reason... Families are not aware that they have so much synesthesia going on. So if I'm a person with coloured letters, why would I suddenly ask my child, what's the taste of Tuesday? It wouldn't happen. So quite often you get these families with multiple variants appearing. Um, And then there are more direct genetics findings. So I mentioned earlier, uh, Julian Asher did some pioneering research with Simon Baron-Cohen on the genetics. More recently, uh, the Max Planck Institute in Nijmegen has got a fantastic genetics project going on, screening hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, hopefully thousands and thousands of synesthetes, um, and finding hotspots on chromosomes uh, that are suggestive of synesthesia. It's unfortunately, it's not a clean picture. Sometimes in the genetics, it's quite easy to point to genes. What we're finding is that different families seem to have, different families and different variants of synesthesia seem to have different genetic profiles. So it hasn't been a very easy task or a very clean picture, but we have got these areas on the genome that are hotspots, if you like, for certain kinds of synesthesia in certain families. If a person with synesthesia experiences trauma, such as a blow to the head or even a very high fever, is that something that could make the synesthesia disappear? And conversely, if you didn't have it, but then you experienced a blow to the head, could it trigger synesthesia? Or is that just an off-the-wall question? (laughs) Actually, I think both those things are true. Um, There are rare cases of acquired synesthesia, after trauma. Um, There are also cases of synesthesia disappearing under certain circumstances. Now, it's not very well studied because obviously we can't replicate this very well in the lab and nor would we want to because I I wouldn't be the person to take away a synesthesia. Um, But there are cases, there's anecdotal reports, there's some really reliable anecdotal reports. So um, there is a case of... um, uh, I, I... a very prominent synesthete um, who uh, very sadly experienced uh, the Japanese earthquake and felt for some time afterwards that his synesthesia was deadened. And that was quite a troubling thing for him to deal with. Luckily, it's come back. I've had also synesthetes contacting me, asking me about medication. They're on a medication and suddenly their synesthesia is attenuated. Um, When we give large surveys to synesthetes and ask them for self-reports, sometimes reports of caffeine making differences. But it's very hard for us to pin this down in the lab. So quite often you'll find these reports in case study journals, uh, which are really useful. 
So one thing that you've written about that I found surprising was that um, people are not always reliable reporters of whether they have synesthesia. Some people with it don't realize they have it. Some non-synesthetes will say that they do. Why is that? And, and how do you test to determine whether someone actually has synesthesia? So the first time I came across this, I was really surprised by quite how inaccurate self-report is in synesthesia. Um, let me answer this by telling you how we verify synesthesia first of all. So we have a very nice test for synesthesia that seems robust and has been used since uh, ooh, 1989, 90, early 90s. Um, again, this was a very nice test that Simon Baron Cohen was able to uh, pioneer. So we test synesthetes by looking for a trait called consistency over time. So what we do is we ask synesthetes to tell us their associations. And in fact, we do this in, in more sophisticated ways. So for example, we have tests that show the letters and numbers in a random order. Every time a grapheme appears, the synesthetes required to choose um, the specific synesthetic color from a really fine grain color palette that has like 16 million colors. So an A will appear, the synesthete will choose their exact shade of red. Uh, a seven will appear, the synesthete will choose their exact shade of, of green and so on. And once they get to the end of the test, we surprise synesthetes and we repeat it. So they do the whole thing over and over again. And they can do this anything from twice to maybe three times. And what, we're able, what we have at the end is each letter and number with the colors given to it over time by the same synesthete. And then we can use a, a technique that allows us to look at color distances. So when I ask you for the color of A the first time and the second time, I plot those colors in space and I say, how close are they in space? Now, if you are consistent, those colors will be very close in color space. You'll have said the same shade of red twice. If you ask a control, they'll be inventing it, making it up, very inconsistent, very large distances in color space. So we can quantify the consistency of a synesthete uh, in terms of um, you know, the distances in color space. And this shows us that synesthetes are very, very, very consistent. You're not going to fool them. If you say what color is seven, they're always going to tell you exactly the same shade of, I don't know, subtle lime green. They're going to, they're going to be spot on. And controls are going to be inconsistent. And so we have a threshold of consistency. Synesthetes have to be above the threshold in order to be um, validated as a synesthete. So when we run these tests, we usually start by saying, first of all, this is synesthesia. Have you got synesthesia? And you would think that everybody who says yes goes on to be consistent and everybody who says no goes on to be inconsistent. But actually what we find is that for every true consistent synesthete who says they have synesthesia, there are five non-synesthetes saying they have synesthesia. And the reasons are actually not too surprising. There's a tiny bit of um, social desirability. It's quite nice to say you have something interesting. But actually, there are a lot of artists who say they have synesthesia because what they have is a really fine-grained appreciation for colour. And that's quite easy to confuse. So lots of the non-synesthetes reporting synesthesia are artists. Some of them are just sort of, some of them are just mistaken. Some of them are just not concentrating. But all in all, if I ever now review papers on synesthesia where there's no consistency test, it, it's dead in the water because you don't know you have synesthetes. So you were talking about um, artists and, and creative types. Is it more likely that a person who is creative and is an artist would have synesthesia? Is there actually some association? Sure. Yes, there seems to be. So um, 
First of all, if you look within creative disciplines, you're more likely to find synesthetes. Now, that makes it difficult because artists are more likely to inaccurately say they have synesthesia, but there's still more synesthesia among artistic people. So you have to really use these careful tests. But yes, you find synesthetes more likely to go into artistic professions and those professions are tied to their synesthesia. So more musicians with coloured music synesthesia, um, for example. Um, we can also find evidence of higher creativity with lab tests. So, uh, the, um, so for example, a test of creativity that's quite well known is the remote associates test. Um, and in that test, you're given three words such as, you're given three words and you have to provide the fourth word that links them all, okay? Um, and I have to think carefully about this so I don't reveal the linking word, but an example might be <laughs> boot, yeah, this is tough, boot, ground, summer, okay? Now those three words are linked by one other word, and that other word is camp. So boot camp, summer camp, campground. And this is a test of creativity and synesthetes perform very well in this test. Um, we also have evidence that this creativity is starting quite early. So we have recently finished a large uh, ERC funded project. So European Research Council funded us to look at synesthesia in children for five years. And we can even see those creativity traits emerging early in children. So when we find children with synesthesia from the general population, so we're not relying on people to come forward, we've screened thousands of children, we've found the synesthetes among them, and we look at their personality, and the children don't really realize they're special, the parents don't know that, they have, that their children have synesthesia, but everybody concurs that these synesthetes are higher in the trait of um, openness to experiences, um, which is linked to intellectual curiosity, but also creativity. So children themselves feel that they're more creative in their personalities. Their parents feel they have more creative personalities. Um, and we can see this from really a young age, from the age of around, I think the children we tested were between uh, six and 10. And we can see these effects emerging, you know, by, if not by six, then by, you know, seven or eight. So yes, creative population. So you've done research that's found that even though most people do not have synesthesia, they do have cross-sensory experiences or associations, for example, associating higher-pitched tones with brighter colors. Uh, can you tell us about that research and how it relates to synesthesia? Sure. This is always an area of research that can really play with my head because we look at many different sensory domains and we look at how they cross over in many different ways. So I'm going to think carefully. So the one that you've just described is actually a great finding by, among other people, my colleague J.B. Ward. He has shown that people systematically associate the pitch of a, uh, music with colours in a several ways. So for example, higher pitch so imagine a test where I play you sounds and I ask you to choose colors and you feel like you're randomly picking because I play you a high pitched sound, a low pitched sound, a, you know, a, a stringed instrument, a, a piano. And I just ask you to pick colors and you, you kind of you're willing to do this task, although you suspend disbelief because you think you're going to be random. And actually, people are very, very consistent. Higher pitch sound maps to more luminant colors. So imagine a piano, imagine I'm on a piano and I'm tinkling on the high notes and I'm crashing on the low notes and I say to you, which one of those is pale yellow? And you are much more likely to say that the pale yellow is the higher pitch note, 
Okay, and maybe deep dark purple is the low pitch note. So there's that there's that association. But there are many, many, many of these associations. So we have shown that if you give people an identical sweetie, an identical candy, and it either has a rough surface or a smooth surface, they will think that the candy is more sour with the rough surface, even though it has the identical uh, ingredients. Um, so, and here's something quite fun. We have recently been looking at the same phenomenon in dogs. So research in collaboration with my colleague, uh, David Reby and our student, Anna Korzhanowska, who's, who's leading this research. We have taken domestic dogs into the lab and we show them different objects. So they're either objects of a different size or they're elevated differently in space. And we play sounds and we train the dogs in advance to go to the object that's making a sound. And what we find is that they're much more likely to target the small object when the sound is high pitched and the large object when the sound is low pitch. And similarly, when the sound is high pitch, they look up to an object up in space. And when the sound is low pitch, they look down to an object on the ground. So this shows associations between on the one hand sound and on the other hand, the visual property of size or the visual property of elevation in space. And that's some really exciting work that's been really fun to, to conduct. Wow, that's amazing. So let me change gears a little bit, because in addition to synesthesia, you study a variety of other brain and sensory differences. For example, as I said um, earlier, um, misophonia, which is an extreme aversion to specific sounds, and aphantasia, which is the inability to picture things in your mind's eye. These seem like really disparate concepts, but how do they tie together? That's such a good question, because... Or do they? Yeah, that's a really good question because um, I found myself working in synesthesia for a couple of decades and then being introduced to other sensory differences, finding them fascinating, berating myself for not having focus for, for effectively coming away from synesthesia and then finding out over time that these different conditions are tied by kind of invisible thread. So all of them are sensory differences and they all share certain traits in common. Um, for example, in terms of well-being, so we find that people with these sensory differences, even synesthesia that's sometimes considered a gift, can have impairments in their well-being, can have problems in their well-being. So for example, in synesthesia, we found that people with synesthesia, with verified synesthesia, are significantly more likely to experience anxiety disorder than other people. We were really surprised about this. We, we weren't looking at particularly troubling variants. We were looking at colored letters and numbers, higher rates of anxiety disorder. We've just finished a similar study in child synesthetes, and 30% of our child synesthetes under 10 qualify for um, sort of the category of anxiety disorder, which is really high. Usually in children, it's around, in our, in our controls, we found it at around less than 10. Synesthetes at 30%. Wow. Um, and similarly in these other disciplines, in these other, similarly in these other sensory differences. So misophonia itself is, it's almost defined by, by difficulties in well-being. So misophonia can give rise to great anxiety. Um, as well as, so, 
misophonia is an extreme hatred of certain sounds and those sounds tend to be bodily sounds like coughing or chewing or crunching or swallowing and it can really give rise to these incredible differences in well-being anxiety rage um, uncontrollable feelings really that we know are also linked to brain structure um, and what we found in children as young as 10 is that children children that we've been able to recognize as having misophonia showing Serious differences in their well-being, again, elevated anxiety, as you might expect, but also poorer quality of life, um, poorer satisfaction in life. Um, and then there's also the link with autistic-like traits. So the more we look at these sensory differences, the more we see parallels with and overlaps with uh, autism. Now, it's not the case that having synesthesia means you're autistic, but it does mean that you're elevated on tests of autism in certain, in certain areas. So in misophonia, for example, you're significantly more likely to be um, diagnosed as or recognized as having autism than the average person. In synesthesia, you're elevated on the traits of attention to detail. In synesthesia, you're elevated on the autistic trait of attention to detail. And in misophonia, no. And in aphantasia, you're elevated in the autistic traits of social difficulties and um, imagination. And so, yes, there's this overlap of autistic traits, there's this overlap in well-being, poorer well-being. So the more I look at many different sensory conditions, the more I'm convinced that they all really fit together um, in, a, in a kind of coherent whole. Here's one I'll, I'll throw at you. So we had a guest um, a few months back did an episode on face blindness. And one of the people is someone I know who has been diagnosed with face blindness. And she recently also learned that she has aphantasia. Have you looked at those connections? We have, we have, and we are actually. So I think in self-report, people with aphantasia report being poorer at faces on average. And a very nice study we're conducting here at Sussex, led by my PhD student Carla Dance, and in, in collaboration with my colleague Graham Hole, who's a who's a, a witness recognition, a face recognition expert, um, we've been able to give identikits to people with aphantasia, and we show them a face, and then we ask them to reconstruct the face uh, using these identikits, which, and then we give the reconstructed face to a group of controls and ask them how similar is this reconstructed face with the original. And we do that once for our people with aphantasia and once for controls. And we're in the middle of doing that study right now. And I, we can see trends in the direction that we'd expect, but we need to finish that study to find out exactly whether it, it's significant. But it it does look at the moment as if it's trending in the direction of what we would expect, which is poorer face recall for people with aphantasia. Although I, I need to add something. This is only a tr this is only an typical of the average aphantasic. Okay, so what we actually find is a real spread. And it's quite interesting because I I have aphantasia myself, but I'm almost a super recognizer. So I, when I perform tests of face recognition, I'm almost good enough to work for the police. How am I doing that? I have, I, how am I doing that? I have no mental imagery, but I just know very, I'm just able to pick out a face in the crowd very well. So there you go. It's a spread. And, and, but the average person is, is, is less good than controls. So I'm just wondering if, um, 
particularly misophonia and aphantasia, are debilitating to the people who have these syndromes? And is it possible to help someone learn to diminish, say, an aversion to sounds or to teach people how to see things in their mind's eye? Yeah, definitely. And I think that um, is definitely happening a lot more for misophonia. So misophonia is, is defined as a kind of almost as an almost chronic condition. And misophonia is also really a topic of focus for clinicians. A lot of clinicians are trying to find out exactly how we can um, how we can fix how we can fix this problem. There are um, some long-term clinical treatment options. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy has been tried, uh, a tinnitus retraining therapy, a counter-conditioning therapy. They, they aim to reconceptualize the individual's relationship with sound, or they repair unpleasant sounds with more pleasant responses. Uh, some approaches combine therapy with gentle exposure, um, it's not there there it's still quite a young science it's still quite a young science there isn't really an outstanding uh, treatment that's emerging above all others we're just trying clinicians are just trying uh, different options at the moment and but nothing some of them are effective but not exclu- not across the board a fantasia is an interesting one um <laughs> People aren't really trying to improve imagery at the moment in aphantasics. I mean, I know personally, I found out I had aphantasia around 10 years ago. I was having an interesting chat with a colleague about synesthetes, and I said to him, these synesthetes are reporting that they can see pictures in their mind's eye. So if I say pig, they literally see an image of a pig. And I was speaking to my colleague, Bob Logie, who said, well, that's what everybody does, isn't it? And I said, no, you don't understand. They, they, they see a picture in their mind. He said, yeah, that's what everybody does. So from that moment 10 years ago, I have tried, personally speaking, I've tried to construct images. I don't, I haven't had a great deal of success, to be honest. Um, although that's an N of one, so who knows? So maybe we might try it. But really, the, the, the difference between aphantasia and misophonia is that people with aphantasia are getting on fine. They're just getting on fine with their life. They really have no idea they're different. They understand visual imagery as a metaphor. You know, they, it, it, it's really not a big deal in my life. I'm not very good at interior decorating. I find that quite hard. What's this sofa going to look like against that wall? Really, apart from that, it's fine. <laughs> well, this has been just uh, amazingly interesting, Dr. Simna. I've really enjoyed talking to you. I appreciate your, your taking the time. Thank you. Thanks so much. It's been it's been a pleasure. Thank you. You can find previous episodes of Speaking of Psychology at www.speakingofpsychology.org or on Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have comments or ideas for future podcasts, you can email us at speakingofpsychology@apa.org. That's speakingofpsychology all one word at apa.org. Speaking of Psychology is produced by Lee Weinerman. Our sound editor is Chris Kondayan. Thank you for listening. For the American Psychological Association, I'm Kim Mills.